Right, we're rolling. On this podcast, we'll be talking about different areas of business and all things marketing. My name is Dave Doyle. And I'm Dave Alton. This is Social Antics, another marketing podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to Social Antics, another marketing podcast. We're joined by myself, Dave Doyle, and my co-host, Dave Alton. Week 10, Dave. Week 10, we got there eventually, we got in there. fairness. Like, Double digits. Yeah. You, <laughs> Jesus Christ. We, the bar, we set the bar high here at Social Antics. We thought we get to 10 and we're here now, so we can kind of, we can pack it in now. We can basically. pack it in, we can pack it in. I suppose, look, uh, we're probably a few days late on this one, um, but the reason why is we won't blame our, our, we have a guest on, but we won't blame him, but we're, we were a bit delayed on this one. It for was a sheer of laziness on our part. We could have done one last week and we said no. We'll wait for the guests because we wanted a guest for episode 10. Yeah, that was kind of what we set out at the very start. So, look, we got there. We got a guest. Um, we, we, it, was, it, was, it wasn't a few down the list. We, we had the hope set for, for this guy at the very start that he was going to be one of the guests, but we were actually very shocked that he said yes. Um, yeah, like if there's one person that you don't want to be interviewing for your first guest, it's an ex-journalist who national is now a national broadcaster, public relations specialist, but uh, we chance our arm at the best of times, so why not chance your arm at a journalist? Like? Yeah, exactly. So uh, this week we have Jonathan Healy on, uh, as you said, national broadcaster, um, but I suppose why we wanted to get Jonathan on was Jonathan kind of has his, you know, a couple of strings to the bow and suppose of that he's, as you said, working um, as a journalist, broadcaster, does TV, involved in radio, also running his own PR company. Um, so I suppose it was kind of, you know, it was a nice fit to come in. So you're coming, there is a, there is a divide, I suppose, in marketing and, P- and PR, but a lot of people don't know that really. Like, you know? Correct, yeah. I mean, and, and they're not one of the same. Like, I mean, I would use PR for the purposes of brand building, but as we'll hear from the interview, there's a lot more nuance to public relations in terms of how you get the most out of individuals within an organisation, how you craft a story, and really how you get people to communicate that story in a very, very resonant way. So Jonathan goes through some of the, the tricks of the trade, and then what I think was very, very important is, and it's going to become more and more important um, in the world of marketing, in a world of fake news in a world of spin in a world where marketers and marketing isn't really trusted and is critiqued quite a lot the importance of truth and the importance of i suppose having some sort of a story there that is actually real is actually authentic and that is communicated again in a very very resonant way because really really important not just pr but but also for marketing so they are i suppose two sides of the two sides of the same kind but um yeah so you're definitely right um one thing we probably will a disclaimer i suppose for this is being the guest being covid all that kind of stuff is we don't have a lovely big studio even though look obviously it sounds like it but uh it's obviously done over uh zoom so apologies for any a little bit of audio um discrepancies or, or it's about it's about the quality of the story no it's about the, yeah okay fair enough all right okay we'll stick with that they listen to us every week ramble on i don't think the audio quality is going to turn people off at this point no truth be told and fair, it's jonathan healy so. and it's jonathan healy so they're going to listen of course they're going to listen 
So after graduating with a degree in law from University College Cork, Jonathan worked in radio, television and online media for two decades. He has been a presenter with News Talk uh, and a senior correspondent with Sky News, uh, with his work featuring prominently on both stations. Jonathan has also experienced working with TV3, RT, FM 104, the Cork Independent and Cork's 96FM. And since, he has gone poacher term gamekeeper and is now running his own PR agency, Healy Communications. Jonathan, welcome to Social Antics. I sound way more important than I actually am when you list all the things like that, to be fair. Uh, I'm pretty sure I wrote that list myself, but it's uh, terrifying to hear it read out. There, it sounds good for the listeners, though, and that's the main thing here, like, (laughs) do you know what I mean? So, to start off, anyway, Jonathan, how does a bloke who did law in UCC end up being a journalist working for some of the biggest companies in the world, um, like Sky News? Uh, Well, I I did enjoy studying the law um, in UCC, uh, but I found out that I didn't necessarily get on as well with the people who were going to become solicitors than I did the people who weren't going to become solicitors. So I kind of realised that practising law just wasn't going to be for me. I enjoyed the theory and the principle and the concept, uh, but... It's just I couldn't imagine myself, you know, filling in forms and diving through paperwork. I might have enjoyed a little bit of of, of barrister work, but then I just don't think I had the staying power uh, or the confidence, really, at that stage. Um, in the meantime, when I was studying in UCC, I started volunteering with the college radio station, which at the time was called Cork Campus Radio, because as an extremely unattractive uh, 20-year-old. It was one of the few places where you could be a nerd and there were girls. Uh, So that kind of drew me (laughs) in. Um, And uh, while I was there, uh, I did manage to hone the start of a trade. It really was a kind of a a, a live apprenticeship whereby you got to make all your mistakes on the radio when very few people were listening. Uh, But we set up a current affairs program and then uh, my part-time work switched from fuel injection technician to Charlie Murphy's Statoil on the Blackwalk Road uh, to part-time newsreader uh, in 96FM. Um, and that was it. Uh, once I graduated from law, uh, it was at that stage really where masters were, they were very fancy things. You wouldn't necessarily have gone for one unless you really had to. Uh, so I, I kind of started out as a trainee journalist in 96FM. And from there, um, I learned a awful lot uh, from the guys who many of whom are still there PJ Coogan uh, who of course presents the opinion line now uh, is a huge mentor of mine always was uh, taught me all the bad habits I still have and uh, <laughs> and then I kind of it, it went from there I went from 96 FM to FM 104 in Dublin where I went in as as, as general dishwasher uh, finished up as news editor and from there joined Sky News's um Ireland operation, which was fairly short lived. They, they only they only uh, had interest in it for three years. But again, great experience. Started out there as a video journalist, filming, editing, doing the whole uh, writing the scene, writing the theme tune, singing the theme tune, and uh, performing the theme tune. Uh, and and then became a correspondent with them, which allowed me to move back to Cork. And that's the kind of important part of the story. Is I got back to Cork because they hired me, uh, well, they appointed me as the West of Ireland correspondent. But because the British knowledge of Irish geography is so poor, I got away with moving back to Cork. Um, and, and from there, uh, once Sky went belly up, I joined News Talk. And again, same thing happened. Went in as a correspondent. And then uh, through persistence and annoying people at, at various high levels, I ended up as a presenter there. So that, that's kind of the trajectory. Um, I did radio. I did telly. A little bit of writing over the years. But 
always always had a passion for broadcasting um and it's 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 fun it still is like i mean i'm filling in for pat kenny when we're recording this and it's 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 like respite um it's muscle memory for me it's going back in to do something that you've always done in your own head um and the great thing is i don't have to worry about internal politics anymore don't have to worry about whether they're going to cancel my program i just go in do my bit and go home it's great and how does that fare up then with that lump of work then with obviously running a full-time business on the side of it like you know how, how do you how do you manage all that well, I refer to broadcasting now as my well-paid hobby um, because I don't do a huge amount of it. Um, what, what I do is when, when Pat is off, and Pat's off for a couple of weeks a year, um, and he's a very gracious colleague uh, who allows me to fill in for his program when I try not to lose his listenership, um, it, it's, it's normally kind of blocks off. So it's like a block of two weeks here and a block of a week there. Um, so what you do is you plan your time around it. Um, and you're, you're out, you're finished at 12. So you've got the rest of the day to catch up on other things. And I have great colleagues working with me in the company um, who will kind of, you know, manage the day-to-day stuff while you're there, um, you know, deal with any issues as they arise. And, and then I can kind of roll back in and put my PR hat back on uh, from about five past, 10 past 12 every day. It, it's really about having great people to work with because the production team in Newstalk are used to me, God help them. Um, so they know uh, what they have to, they, they literally provide me with a stack of papers in the morning that I have to read uh, that gets me through three hours of radio when I'm doing it. And then I do the rest of the work then in the afternoons and running into the evenings. When I'm doing radio, you're, you're, you're doing long days. You're finishing at eight or nine o'clock at night. But it's worth it. As I said, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a bit of diversity. And from when I was a news reporter, um, uh, and out on the street, dirty news reporter. The, kind of the, the, the fella standing outside the court, or, 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 or God forbid, having to knock on someone's door. Um, there's a wanderlust in me that that would never be satisfied by sitting at a desk. Um, and, and I think I've been very lucky in the various careers I've had to date that I've never actually had to stand still or sit down for too long. I always am on the move, um, getting out, meeting people. Uh, an editor once told me you'll never find a story sitting on your arse there. Um, and she was right. And most importantly, I will never find a client or I will never find business <laughs> sitting at home. I have to, you have to go and meet clients. You have to get them to realise that you are able to bring something to their business from your business. Little more challenging to do it in the last few months for obvious reasons. But at the same time, it's, it's all about forming a connection between one person and another. That's all it is. But that natural curiosity that you have, particularly in terms of like seeking out the story, shall we say, now that you're on the other side of the fence when you're trying to, I suppose, sell stories to journalists, essentially, who are going to publish your client's work. Like having that background in journalism must help that because you can see the perspective of the journalist, what they're going to be looking for rather than what a lot of PR agencies might do, which is what they think is an interesting story. But a journalist might look at it and going, this is gutter. I see this every day of the week. It's two sides of the same coin, realistically. Um, what we do, and, and we're kind of unique as, as a PR company, we're all former journalists. So mm. Neave Hennessy, who's with me, was uh, with AIB uh, and uh, with Sunday Business Post and the Irish Examiner before. Uh, Kira McDonough worked with me at Ustalk. Myra Hayes-Goff worked uh, in Today FM. So we all come at this from a storytelling perspective. And every company has a story it's not rocket science they've all done things but the problem is they're not used to telling the story in the right way 
Um, so what we will do is we literally go in, uh, we look at a company, we'll find out and assess what they're doing. We'll see where they can contribute stories that are legitimate. I mean, it's, it's called earned content. Um, it's there for a reason. Uh, but a lot of the time, the mistake that we saw always consistently as journalists was you see something coming in and you're going, I, okay, I can see what you're trying to do, but nobody cares. Um, but the point is with every company that's out there, somebody cares. You just have to find out what the something that people care about is. And once you find that and you speak to people, th the stories already exist. I mean, we, we've yet to encounter a company where we couldn't tell a story. Um, and, and fingers crossed that will continue. And where, where where do you think is it at the point now? I've heard you, you know, giving advice to many businesses before, but where at a point in the business's plan or year or strategy or whatever it is, do you think they should start looking at a company like yours? It really depends on their journey. Ideally, start at, it brings in at the start. Um, if you're, I mean, I love speaking to startup companies because startups, uh, they're, they're virgin territory. Um, they they uh, have an idea. Um, they're at the point of which you can turn around and say, well, I, I know what you're trying to do, but I wouldn't do it that way. And they'll listen. Yeah. Um, but the more established companies that are there, I, what I find really interesting is I've interviewed thousands of people over the years. I'm not intimidated by interviews anymore. It's, it's, just, it's just not a thing. Obviously, I'm absolutely terrified of this interview because I'm talking. Um, but for the most part, when I'm asking the questions, I really don't care. We'll get our tips um, later from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, the, the grilling is brutal here. Um, but what I find fascinating is that no matter who you speak to, the, the higher they are, the more human they are. Um, and, and once you form that connection with them, that you can say, you're brilliant at what you do, clearly, and you know what you're doing. Um, you just get them to relax and remember why they're in the job that they're in. They, that, that everybody puts up artificial barriers that prevents them from telling their story properly. Um, and when we do media training with everybody, it always follows a pattern whereby you do a, what we call the cold interview with them and you get them to make all the mistakes uh, and they will give me information, but they'll give it to me in the wrong order. And that, that's literally all it is. It just comes out in the wrong order. And as a result, I drag them down the wrong lane and they, they end up making a bags or something. And then what I do is at the very end, I go, well, why didn't you say ABC? And they go, oh yeah, that'd be, that'd be great if, if I could say that. It says, I know nothing about your company. I am only telling you what you told me. I'm just ordering it in the right way. You did C, D, X, Y, and Z. I'm going A, B, C, D. And once they see that and get that, they become confident. And that's very important. That is universal for communications. It's as important for the company starting out as it is the, the listed company on the stock exchange. And it's, it's, it's about people being confident to tell the message in the right order. So you've said that in a very kind of eloquent way in terms of trying to train people up in media training and the process and stuff like that. You must come across some people, though, that are just almost like a rabid dog. They're untrainable. They come across as very unlikable or they, they just, they're terrible over interviews. They come across as arrogant, yeah, cocky. I, do you know what? How do you... I, 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 I've interviewed them, Dave. I know who they are. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, over the years, you don't do thousands of interviews without meeting the odd one where you go, God almighty, where did you fall from? But having done the media training, I, I've never encountered anyone who can't get better. I mean, it, it really is that simple, that there is uh, a potential in everybody to tell the story the right way. And there's no greater satisfaction than talking with somebody who has a brilliant story, but was allowing the circumstance of the interview to overwhelm them. And 
you know, we use the example, I'm breaking all of the rules, by the way, if anyone who has ever been media trained by me, <laughs> right now, I haven't followed a single rule. But um, you, you give them confidence to know that they've somewhere to go, because that is the biggest fear, that people think I'm going to fall apart here and people are going to think I'm terrible. But whereas if you just say you have to just paint by numbers, do these following few actions and you can't go wrong. It doesn't really matter what questions are asked. You'll still get through it and make your make your contribution memorable. Uh, and what I always say is, fellas who go in for a 6-0 win in the match will never succeed. Uh, if you're doing an interview and if you're out there to try and get your message out that you're looking to communicate, you are looking for a memorable nil-all draw. Because if the other person wins or you think you're going to win, you're, it won't work for you. You're looking for a memorable nil-all draw where everybody walks off the pitch and in normal times would shake hands with each other. I don't know, we wave at each other in COVID times. But that's what you're going for. Um, and once people get that, that, that the interview is a conversation between two people that others happen to hear, that's a significant shift. It makes perfect sense. And I remember, like, I mean, one of the most memorable interviews that I ever came across um, was when uh, Tuberty interviewed Blair, I think it was. No, not one of mine, no. Not one of yours, not one of mine. I work in the mornings, Jonathan, you're on too early for me. <laughs> <laughs> but in that scenario, again, it was that, it was all, you could almost feel the tension coming from the interview. And you couldn't necessarily pick up at any particular moment, but as you said, the overall experience was memorable. You could almost sense the tension coming out from the television, shall we say. And is that what you're aiming for with every claim that you have? It's almost like, are you almost overemphasizing the story to a point whereby it becomes more important than it probably actually is? No, I mean, the, 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 the benchmark is very simple. Um, before we do the interview, you know what the topic is going to be. That's... That's probably all you know. You're not going to get the questions. Nobody does that in advance. Um, but what you do is, what are the three points you want to communicate? Just what are they? What are the three things? I always like to use the rule that your partner's outside the door and she's listening in. And you walk out of the interview and you say, what are the three things I said? And she'll, if you want, she'll say, you want her to say one, two and three back to you. That's it. And you have to get your message in and you have to get your message in in such a way that people will remember it and that it will resonate with them. Um, I'm like, if, if, I'm being, if I'm being honest, one of the most important things that people need to remember, and I, I bored you with this before, Dave, so I'm sorry now. This is for the benefit of the podcast. <laughs> um, when I started out uh, in FM 104, which is my second real job, um, within a week, the deputy news editor pulled me to one side. I was just after moving to Dublin uh, cock of the walk thought I was the second coming of Charles Mitchell the famous RTE news reader um, and she said I'm going to have to do one of two things I'm going to have to either fix you or fire you um, so I, I said we'll, we'll try we'll try fixing because you know that, that's more fun um, and she says you're doing it all wrong and I said well how am I doing it wrong she says well you're reading the news now at this point I was hideously confused because my job contract literally said <laughs> so 24 year old me hadn't a bogs what was going on and she says no no any fool can read words on a page. Your job is to tell the story and is to tell the story in such a way that it's understood. And I've literally spent the last 20 years uh, in both my professions doing that, making sure that we're not reading the news and that we're telling the story. 
I, th I think it's probably not an understatement to say that when you think PR and kind of the, the general knowledge of it, like when you talk there about crisis and you know at the end of the day and something's gone wrong, is that generally when maybe a company might come to you? Do you know is things gone wrong, John? Please fix it, kind of an attitude or no? no I mean, uh, to be fair, the, the crisis comes. Uh, look, crisis comes is great fun for people like me because uh, <laughs> that's someone else's problem, right? And you're coming in to try and help them with that problem. We we don't have to do an awful lot of that which is great um most of our work is storytelling it's it's finding out what is the essence of a company um you know a company will come to us and say we're looking to do this um and we go well, that's great but like that that one thing it's fine but will that make your company stand out and the answer yeah. is no so we say well that's great let's look under the bonnet of your business let's find out what else you guys do and Instead of, you know, just having one hit on story X, let's tell story Y or let's look at story Z. Because um, what happens in the modern era when people Google a company, um, uh, and, and this is where marketing and PR diverge, lads. I hate to... I, 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 I'm on <laughs> very dodgy ground here. Dodgy ground. Uh, when you Google something, so um, if you Google Healy Communications, Healy Communications will come up on the first page. Um, because somebody with more intelligence than me has worked on the SEO. And that means that Healy Communications will hopefully be towards the top. My competitors will also be there because the PR and Cork are probably keywords that are going to pop up. Um, and then if you click on news, you'll find out what stories have been in the news for us recently. And that's grand. But if you, if you Google a company, so if your customers are Googling you, Okay, because you've you've pitched to them, or or some element has caught their eye. They'll Google. They're going to Google you, and you thinking that being top of the first page in Google is good enough is nonsense, because that just proves to them that you're good at SEO, mm. and that's not really in 2020 a good thing. Um, but most companies are going to click on news to see well what are other people saying about them, what independent analysis has been done of their message like we produce the best bread yeah okay you're going to say that because that's your business but you know if the irish times did a review of breads and yours was the worst uh that's not going to look good for you but that's going to come up on the news search so pr and marketing are different because marketing is you telling everybody how great you are pr is getting somebody else to independently validate that for you and that's where you need integrity that's where your story has to be credible that's why it has to be told properly and that's kind of where we come in to work on that and um, maybe for we've, we've kind of a couple of small uh, sme kind of businesses and business owners listening so what would you what would you recommend them to do before they knock on your door um, well, as a small and, uh, enterprise myself, I'm, I'm well acquainted with uh, how those guys work. You see, the funny thing is, um, they, they will have done a lot of this in the early stage. So they would have worked very hard on that storytelling, that initial offering, and then other stuff got in the way. Mm. And the further you are away from that bit where you kind of had decided the je ne sais quoi of the business... Um, that then is distant. So normally what happens is we'll go into a company, big or small, and we sit down and say, what do you do? And we're going to get four or five different versions from the four or five people we speak to. So that's really important that you you kind of come up with a single version of what you do. 
Um, and that is a template then that you can hand to anybody, including your grandmother, about what the business does. Because you'd be surprised at how many people work in businesses where you could have the owner, you could have the manager, you could have the staff on the floor maybe. Um, and what do you do prompts different answers. It's very important that you have a single vision. Um, that's the most important thing you need to do. And from that, everything else flows. If we're going to make a comparison <coughs> there, like the... So when you talk about like storytelling and stuff like that, if we're to translate that idea into our own kind of area, which is mainly marketing, it falls into the area of brand building, right? More and more what I suppose I'm finding is that in a world of analytics, big data, everything is measurable, but now everyone wants everything measurable against a specific sale. So we spent X amount on PR. How much did that generate for us in terms of revenue? And we have the same on our side, but it's probably a bit easier for marketing if it's talking about just ads because you can measure how many people clicked on an ad how many people went on to buy to buy something when you're talking about brand building or pr in this instance that becomes a lot more difficult to quantify have you found that that as you're continuing to speak with more businesses that your job is getting a little bit more difficult because you have to quantify absolutely everything when not so long ago this stuff didn't need to be quantified in such rigorous terms. Mm. Um, the short answer really is no, because the value is different. Um, you know, if if a banana company comes to me and says, we want to sell 20,000 extra bananas, and if, if, if the PR campaign doesn't sell 20,000 bananas, then, then this will be a failure. And I'm going to go, guys, I, I really, I can't help you sell bananas. I can make you as a credible banana seller, I can talk about why you are a good banana employer. I can talk about why you are very good at sourcing your bananas ethically, but I can't sell bananas. That's actually your job. Um, and where PR, again, and marketing diverge is you're only ever one disaster away from bad PR. And you can have 10 years of fantastic coverage and using my banana analogy someone slipped <laughs> skin and all of a sudden that's washed away and and brands are coming and going all the time we know that i mean you you, you look at the story today about arcadia and and, yeah. and and all these fantastic high street brands and more than likely they're going to be gone in the new year and which is terrible for all the people who are involved in that so the PR side of it, yeah, people want to quantify it and we can quantify it because what we do is we were able to say if you were to spend this much on advertising, that's how much it would cost. But I still think that's not fair because it's it's not just somebody talk writing about bananas. It's about writing why your banana company is actually better at what it does because of what it does. Uh, and, and that's where the value of PR comes in. You mentioned bad PR there, so... And I've heard kind of conflicting <coughs> thoughts on this. And look, it probably depends on the context in many cases. But in some cases, if you look at PR, one of the objectives could be bury the story. Or was, at least, bury the story. Nowadays, it's probably a lot more difficult to do that. So if you were going to go through Crisis Management 101, how much of the old ways of kind of managing those bad situations, crises or bad PR... What's your thought process or your strategy in terms of how you tackle those kind of in instances? 
Yeah, you can't bury a story, number one. Uh, if the story is there to be told and people are aware of it, um, the best you can do is manage that story. Uh, and, and that really is it. It's about how you manage stories, knowing what's coming up. Most companies have a good runway about what's coming, um, good and bad. Realistically, the truth is the only thing you can lead with. Um, and nine times out of ten, not telling the truth can be very challenging. Because if that truth then comes out, whatever you've done before has been nullified. Uh, so you have to look at every story individually and work out, well, what are the negative angles that could potentially be here? I mean, thankfully, the companies we deal with deal in positive stuff, you know, uh, and we are in a good place at the moment where the economy, for all the challenges we've had during COVID-19, um, Look, things are looking good for next year for, for most of the businesses that we're in. But, you know, when, when you're dealing with some of the businesses and there are negative things out there, you have to you have to address them. You can't just pretend they're not happening. Um, negatives are part of what we do. And you have to make sure that you have a narrative that makes sense. You have a narrative that is credible. You have a narrative that can't be undone after you tell it. Um. And, and truth and honesty are always your best friend. So there's an element of ownership that has to come out here, right? Because there's nothing, like for me, if I'm looking at a brand, the one thing that kind of sends a chill up my spine is that you have the top guy, girl coming out, CEO, whatever the story is, and they start blaming externalities immediately. It was nothing to do with us. And immediately it's kind of, these guys have not learned from what they're doing at all. There isn't a shed yeah. of integrity there. So how much of a work is that for you guys then to say, no, you're better off hitting this head on rather than trying to shirk around yeah, no, the issue. It's, it's, this is not a space I'm in so I can talk about. Customer service. Okay, Customer service has gone to hell in a handcart in the last couple of months. Um, someone explained it to me quite well recently uh, that most customer service is dealt with by having retail stores open and you go in and you say, this is broken, I need you to replace it. And the manager will go, yes, I can see it's broken. Terribly sorry about that. Here's another one. And life goes on. Um, but what has happened in the last nine months is for long periods, the retail outlets have been closed or the restrictions mean you couldn't go in. And as a result, people were trying to contact telephone helplines. They were trying to contact emails, social media, which was fairly creaky to begin with. Um, and, and companies were always on the back for trying to explain it. The telcos, when you bring the telcos into this, the telcos have had a complete nightmare in the last while because what happens is you can't, all, a lot of their staff are working from home. Um, some call centers are open. People are having problems and they can't get through. Um, and there is no answer to that other than to hire more people to answer the phone or to respond to emails. And they, they, if they've done it, it's been extremely well hidden uh, because all that happens is you're building up bad blood. I mean, I've never seen as much bad blood towards companies and brands as I've seen towards the telcos in the last while, which is nuts because people have choice. And fair enough, they might all be as bad as each other at customer service, but people will get frustrated and annoyed. I, I had a problem, I'm not gonna say which company I'm with, but I had a problem with my phone, um, that I, it stopped working, which is kind of important for a phone. <laughs> um, and I, I ended up going down a rabbit hole with somebody on social media 
who, at, at, which then resulted in me having a row over the sale of goods and supply of services act in 1980. I mean, getting into a, a full blown argument about the sale of goods and supply of services act, then getting really frustrated. In the meantime, I, I, I had put something on social media, which I shouldn't have done because I'm not that, I normally don't do it. Then they started ringing me furiously from the other side to try and get me to answer it. Eventually, I rang another person who did at least understand the sale of goods and supply of services act, but kept diverting me back into a retail store where there was a queue of about eight people deep every time I went in there. Eventually, I found a human and the human said, there's dirt in the phone. And I went, huh? I said, there's fluff. My pocket had been depositing little bits of fluff into the earpiece that was solved in 10 seconds. Right? I couldn't solve it because it was my fluff. I didn't want to part with it. But the guy in the, st- in the shop fixed it in 10 seconds. That would have been completely short-circuited by having proper customer service. And it drove me crazy. And that's my story. I mean, there's thousands yeah. upon thousands upon yeah. thousands of stories out there with people with bad blood because of terrible customer service right now. And I think that brands, and and, and doesn't matter what shiny offers you have, when you, excuse my language, when you piss people off, it's going to be hard to keep them loyal. Yeah, and 100%. And when, when you already mentioned it there, social media is, you know, is the, the pitchfork, basically, of customer service. Like, you know, people are straight to social. And it's very, very hard being on the business side of things and the marketing side of things if you're getting a few complaints in, you know, in the week. In the, and it just takes one to escalate and, and that can mm. See, take I, over I your whole week. I think that they've put, they've put too much faith in um, DMs and using bots. To that that some that's the panacea. It's yeah. not because that's not the personal touch that people are looking for. Um, I mean, social media is, is an awful place anyway. I mean, I've, I've experienced that this week when I'm filling in on News Talk at first hand. I mean, with the, I'm only on two days. I've already been accused of being a Nazi. I have been accused of being part of the New World Order when I'm barely part of my own family. Um, I've been accused of uh, being a stuck-up hack, and I'm looking at this going. What's wrong with you people? Why can't you at least be polite and civil? You used to be polite when I was on the radio full time. Now you're all just arseholes. And then I realise I'm as bad as they are. So, you know, you, but the thing is, I don't tweet them back to call them out. <laughs> that's the thing. And that's the difference. I think a lot of companies, that that's literally just what you said there. You, know, you, don't, con- you don't tweet them back. You don't con- contact them back. We've had that issue a good few times over the last couple of months in terms of, you know, COVID and all that, that businesses are going down this rabbit hole of contacting uh, people back or not doing their homework before they tweet back or, you know. And I think you, I was actually listening this morning and I said I, I gear myself up by, for, for interviewing you by listening to you on national radio, you know, really. I doubt you learned anthem to be fair. I'm going to go out <laughs> so and live. You said the standard high, didn't you? I did, I said the standard <laughs> But I think the one, you know, you said one line there when you were talking about a specific story, but you said, just because you tweeted basically doesn't mean you didn't say it or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I think people think... I've, I, I, have, I have a very simple rule uh, about social media and I've, I've stuck with it for years. Uh, look, I'm, I, am, I, I, I would probably put myself as, as down in the, the, the Y or Z list in terms of people who are slightly known in this country. Uh, but I have a reasonable following on Twitter, um, which means that you kind of draw it. Uh, before I post anything, I stop momentarily and go would i say that to someone's face it's a very simple test if somebody was standing in front of me would i say that to them and nine times out of ten if there's a negative thing in that message i would go no i wouldn't 
because that's not the kind of person I am. I, I, you know, and, and this is the same thing that when you do media training with anybody who is customer facing, um, and, uh, you know, the, the fa I, I love in media training making up angry customer messages, right? So if you're speaking to somebody and like John has texted in. Now, John is the biggest grump that the world has ever met. Uh, John would always text in and, you know, uh, John had a terrible experience in the restaurant recently. He said that his, his mother's 80th birthday was ruined because there was an hour and a half wait between courses and uh, it really ruined his mother and, and she died the following day. It was terribly sad and, and she never knew the joy of having a proper birthday ever again. And, and, and you know, you're putting it possibly not as grim as that, but you're putting this to somebody and instantly you see them because they're not in their comfort zone, their first reaction is, well, I find that very unlikely to be true. I mean, we would never have a circumstance where people would wait and they get all defensive and, and you're puffing that. You can see that almost indignation. And afterwards, then, when we when we make them listen back to it, which, again, is tremendous fun, um, <laughs> when they're listening back to it, uh, you're going, well, OK, let's stop now. Let's imagine John came up to you in the restaurant and, and John said to you, I've had a very bad experience with my mother. What's the first thing you'd say to them? And inevitably, it would be, I'm very sorry to hear that. And because that's your instinct. Yeah. Your instinct is to say, I'm sorry to hear that you had a bad experience. You're not validating it. You're not saying that your chef went out for a smoke break for an hour and a half. But what you're saying is, I'm sorry that that was your experience. But what happens is when people take themselves out of that interpersonal interaction between customer and client uh, and put it on social media or put it in a different kind of guise, the defensiveness comes in and, and it breaks down that basic trust that that has until now formed the customer client relationship um as as it would have been known it's a battle anyway though isn't it because i find like i mean social media sites are rage machines all the data shows that the more rage there is on social media the more people click the more people like things yeah, the well, more look, ads as, as a proponent of the more. third world order i am absolutely <laughs> so like if you take that then as, as an example right and the media has completely changed a lot of it predominantly due to social media sites. One thing that I found interesting, because it was just a slight tweak in the way that they're approaching uh, fake news, was Twitter censoring um, the ex-president of the United States, Donald Trump. Yeah. What, like, do you think there is more... Because if you, if you were an advertiser and you wanted to post something or you wanted to advertise something on a newspaper, let's say Sunday Business Post or something like that, there is going to be an editor sitting behind that going... No, you cannot put that in an editorial. You can't pay for that piece of content. That's not, you can't do that. It's a lie or it's fake or it's derogatory, whatever the case may be. Facebook doesn't have that filter. Twitter doesn't have that filter. So you can basically post whatever you want and you can advertise whatever you want as well. Do you think there should be more regulation or responsibility placed on the social media networks to actually screen not just whether something is true or not, but actually whether this something is inciting hate or whether it's mm. um, doing something beyond like what you said is kind of how you would behave in the normal real world. Uh, short answer, yes. Long answer, no. Um, if, if I can put it that way, uh, we are forever going to ca play catch up um, with technology. Um, we, we had a very blissful existence for the bones of 80 years. Uh, longer, really, if you if you're to expand newspapers out, the bones of two hundred years, where somebody had to assemble originally big heavy plates with metal letters 
um, and then kind of print out pages that came out very slowly and landed the following day and there was a permanent record of, of what was said uh, mostly ended up as fish and chip wrapper but <laughs> somewhere it would have been kept um, the and then the broadcast <laughs> came along um, and broadcast uh, then somebody invented videotape and that meant that broadcast kept going and then uh, all of a sudden there was a digital revolution within the last decade um, where people were posting on something called Facebook, which was originally designed, uh, for as far as I can see, so you could perv on your former classmates. Uh, that was the original design of it. Uh, and then it became somehow the fall of democracy. Um, and, and that was one <laughs> hell of a decade, I can tell you. Uh, the, the, the challenge is that the newspapers, the radio, the television all existed within jurisdictions. Um, so you had Irish newspapers, you had British newspapers, but you had American. I mean, the Americans always had the First Amendment, and the Second Amendment, rather. No, the first is the freedom of speech, second is the guns. The First Amendment means you can say whatever <laughs> you want. They don't, uh, I mean, the, you can, if you have a gun, you can definitely, definitely say whatever the hell you want. But over here, we still had regulation. We had libel laws. Um, you know, we still have a press ombudsman in this country. You have journalists who believe in the responsibility of getting it right and that the truth has to come out. Um, whereas the internet is this wild west scenario whereby anything goes and it's a hell of a lot more difficult to um, to regulate it. That said, in this jurisdiction, if I was to tweet something about Dave Alton that was distinctly untrue, um, it wouldn't be Twitter's problem. It's mine. Because I will be brought to book in the courts if Dave Alton takes offence. Um, because it is still publication for defamatory purposes. And as we know, our libel laws are extremely tight here. Um, so it, it really comes down to the country of origin as to where this stuff is coming out from. In Ireland, if you tweet about another Irish person while in Ireland, regulation applies. If I tweet about you in another jurisdiction while I'm on my holidays, then it gets really murky. Um, because where, 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 where does the law say that that message came from? Is it the United States? Well, we can't. I mean, if I'm living in the US and you're here, good luck trying to sue me, Dave. Um, see, and I think that they're ever, forever going to play catch up on this. Um, and I don't think they're ever going to catch them. But, I, that I think being, that, but that being said, right, so you just said there the example of me saying something defamatory about you, you saying something defamatory about me. I would imagine that a lot of that hate that was directed towards you when you were on the radio earlier on today was probably from anonymized accounts so is there uh, something yeah, even there that should be yeah, there you are, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is there even something there for example the gambling sites do it where you have to verify your identification when you're going on to these sites and it's not as if we're talking about a poor organization here facebook google twitter all of these are multi-billion in some cases going towards trillion dollar organizations, surely there is an onus or there should be an onus placed on them that at the very least you should let the law take its course. Whereas at the moment, a lot of that is anonymized accounts or fake accounts in yeah. a lot of cases. Stick, sticking with the Wild West saloon, right? Um, when the sheriff comes into the saloon, it tends to be less wild um, and becomes quite regulated and boring. And the fellows who came in for the crack in the saloon tend to go, we don't like it here anymore. Uh, so we're just going to bugger off to the saloon in the next town over where they do all sorts of great crack. Um, and you've seen that in the US that, you know, those on the right don't like Twitter and Facebook because they've been censoring Trump. So they've gone off and they've set up 
uh, a new alternative form. Now, it isn't as much fun for them because uh, you can't wind people up if they're all of the same opinion of you. Um, it's only fun when you wind up uh, people that they refer to as the libs uh, because they see it on Twitter. Uh, you, you can't, when everyone thinks the same thing, it's a disaster. Uh, but what will happen is that now Facebook is going to go out of vogue. I'm old enough uh, to remember Bebo. Um, and, and, and you know that, that was, was great Bebo died right yeah. Vine died um, Twitter will eventually die um, TikTok I haven't a clue don't know what it is I know my young that's, 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 that's the fellow there for you know, John, if you want any TikTok. lessons on TikTok I yeah, TikTok. Uh, yeah I mean I uh, look it's, 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 it seems lovely and I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the point is there will always be something else and what will happen is the consumer trend will follow it. And if you start imposing restrictions on one thing, people won't want to be there because it's not much fun yeah. anymore. And it's, 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 it's just, as I said, it's like the bar that's overregulated. All of a sudden it becomes unpopular. Um, and, and you're left, in Facebook's case, with quite an old demographic now. Um, and, and it's great that they have them and they can, they can terrify them that, I don't know, immigrants are going to eat their lunch or something uh, over time. But... The, the younger audience which is the one that the marketing people want and the one that have the disposable income they're gone somewhere else and and there's going to be a I, I feel that there's going to be a constant chase around and just when you get regulation in that prevents the worst excesses of social media something else is going to fill that void and it's like a weird endless game of whack-a-mole yeah fair point i suppose you mentioned there again this kind of changing trends and stuff like that going back to your kind of area your original area of kind of um, expertise which is journalism I suppose one thing that we like doing on here is talking about business models changing business models trends and so on and so forth obviously before newspapers made the bulk of their money off of advertising and then obviously selling newspapers I just looked at some stats before he came on and that since since Covid and you actually did research for I this. did research did. You, you, would be you would be a bit yeah. I do my homework He doesn't I come in every week And he goes So what are we talking about this week And I'm basically <laughs> Leading the conversation I enjoy listening yeah, to him I don't I enjoy but I, I, I'm delighted that Dave Has done research And I can't wait to uh, To listen to it now To see if we can poke holes in it. I love the way That I'm the, like, I'm the academic here I meant to be doing research Go, jeez He did research I mean, like, He did what his job Was meant to do Because obviously He has a, a bit of spare time During the day You know <laughs> coronavirus everyone's at home yeah. but anyway so since coronavirus kicked off a 40% drop in ad revenue and it wasn't it was dropping anyway um, mm. in back in, in 2000 there was about 550 billion dollars spent on ads newspapers commanded about 50% of that now it's down to about 10% of that newspapers have tried to reinvent themselves some of them are going with subscription model uh, for recurring revenue as opposed to the specific sell some of them are looking to do bespoke content as opposed to ad content where do you see the future of the journalist not so much the journalist but the news media site or the the newspaper in the future in terms of a um, robust business model it, it it it's gone through a really difficult evolution um, and it hasn't been helped by the last 12 months. Like I do a presentation as part of the media training where we kind of explain the processes and, and how they work. Um, back to when I started in FM 104, uh, I think when that radio station was pretty big at the time, they would have provided news to other stations around the country. Uh, I think there was a staff of about 25 in the newsroom, um, which is a decent, that's a decent sized newsroom, 25 journalists. 
uh, working seven days a week from early morning to late at night. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure how many they're there now, but it's probably about a fifth, if, if, if about that. Um, we've seen a significant fall off in the number of journalists doing the job, which means it's very important that, that you don't bombard them with, the, with content that's never going to be used. Um, so that's the rule of thumb that we have. Would we have run this ourselves? And if the answer is no, then we have we have another go at it because it's it's if it's not right. Um, the 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 challenge for the industry is advertising was already falling. Um, the print media is a prime example of that, but the consequence of income falling means that they have less money to put into the resource of the newspaper, and the resource of the newspaper is the journalist, is the reporter going out finding the story, and there is a huge responsibility on the on, on the fourth estate if we call it that to to be there um to hold truth to power um and and to do everything that that the media is supposed to do if you don't have paid journalists doing that job independently without bias society's in trouble uh, and, and that is the long and the short of it um i think that we are going to end up with less print more online uh radio has remarkable longevity in this country uh completely at odds with others um but that's going to change with the demographic demographic is the killer there um and television linear television is effectively dead um thank you netflix you've managed to ruin <laughs> one of the few good things we had um and and the problem is that monetizing it is 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 really really hard. Um, from a PR perspective, in the last nine months, there's been a huge transition from clients going, well, you know, what website is it on? Whereas previously it would be what paper was it in? Um, the 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 papers are really really doing their best to meet that demand. That that they realise that the people are more likely to read the story sitting on the bog in the morning looking at their phone than they are to buy the newspaper. For a long time during this chaotic year, people weren't physically able to go to the shops to get the newspapers. I mean, that was terrifying. And I have huge credit to the owners of those papers because, you know, the easy thing to do would be to panic. Um, they didn't. They realised they had a responsibility. Uh, same with radio stations, same with newspapers. Like, this is a year of all years that we needed news. Um, and, and we are lucky in this country to have... Um, organizations that still care um, and sales teams had a really really tough year um, and fingers crossed it's going to be getting better for them in the new year but the model the income model has changed dramatically online is harder to sell it's all clicks driven it's a nightmare how do you like just that's why you end up with terrible headlines and good stories and for the most part seasoned media organizations are not going down the clickbait route they realise that the audience is still intelligent and can discern what a good story is or not. Uh, and it's hard, um, but I genuinely think companies believe that there is value to be had from supporting these companies to get the message out. I think maybe maybe looking forward for the next couple of months, maybe. Um, obviously, with your uh, jobs, you, kind of have, you dabble in a couple of different areas in terms of media, uh, traditional, digital. But looking forward to the next couple of months now where brands are going to start you know, hopefully anyway, you know, getting back into the full swing of things, getting things going, uh, brands that maybe have been closed. 
what what do you kind of recommend for businesses to start looking at going forward how do they market how do they maybe change the way they were advertising or telling their story well, I think, first of all, at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, um, I, I think we all have a massive bonfire that we dance around naked. And <laughs> 2020 was a terrible year that we never want to talk about again. It, it's just, we'll just refer to it as it um, and, and move on. I, I think the big issue, because uh, vaccines, vaccines are, are obviously the game changer. Um, and the rollout of the vaccine which we don't know how they're going to do it yet, but we have to assume that there will be some form of plan uh, to give it to the most vulnerable first and the healthcare workers, and, and then the rest of us will at some stage get a vaccine, probably in either Q1 or Q2. Um, and if you don't want it and you really are opposed to vaccines, on your own head be it, uh, but don't worry, the vast majority of people are probably going to get it anyway, so you're not going to get COVID anyway. So look, let's assume that the world will be a better place uh, by the middle of next year. I think there was going to be a ridiculous rush to get out of the gates in January. There always is. January, is, it's like going back to school, that all of a sudden everybody wants something done. Events will be planned. Uh, stories, well, we have to get this story out now, now, now. So the clever thing is to spread it out. Don't try and do everything in January yeah. or February. Um, you know, your plan, you probably have it in your head right now. You're probably going to commit it to paper before Christmas. Uh, you, you were probably afraid to plan with any degree of confidence, which we weren't able to do. I mean, I, I was consistently saying, anyone that tells you a two weeks time is a liar because uh, we couldn't possibly tell. What to, and that's still true, by the way. We don't know. But once the vaccines come in, that will be different. I, I think the key to success is spreading it out. Don't try and get everything done in the first month or two. If you can, keep communicating. I mean, the most important thing that companies have done well this year is constant communication, yeah. over-communication. You had to keep telling people what you were doing uh, because if you didn't, that void was going to be filled by something else, uh, which was a real problem for some companies that in their panic, they forgot to tell people that they were still there and that what they were doing. And as a result, something else would have possibly filled that void. So keep over communicating, um, plan out a strategy of how your story is going to roll out um, and and then just try and be a little bit more confident about the future that we couldn't have been this year. I mean, don't forget that there have been companies that really have done very well this year. Um, and, and it's because they were in sectors that weren't directly impacted. Like your heart goes out to the pubs and hospitality because they were hugely impacted. And then retail, you look at grocery retail, they had a great year um, because we were all stuck at home. Look at the guys who run the cinemas, they had a terrible year. So... The ship will right itself next year, but it won't be immediate and you need to plan your way out. Perfect, yeah. Some great advice in there. Um, Jonathan, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. We really appreciate it. You're actually, I don't know if Dave told you, you're actually going to be the first guest on the podcast. So this highly... No, Dave didn't tell me. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> I don't give any information. Like you said, don't plan any of the questions beforehand. Just leave, leave <laughs> your guessing. Play as hard to get to. I can tell one of you planned the questions. I'm just not going to say who. That's all right. We won't say that. But look, Jonathan, thanks very much. We really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck. And look, we, I suppose we can officially say now, have a good Christmas. Happy Christmas. And, yeah, uh, we're, we're, we're officiating that. The Christmas tree is up here, lad. So happy Christmas. <laughs> happy Christmas. Jonathan, take care. Thanks very much. Great stuff. Cheers, See you later. Guys.